Hi, this is Dr. Sean Handorp, clinical psychologist and health behavior expert, and this is the Motivation Made Easy podcast. Each week, I'll be bringing you science-backed information, strategies, and inspiration to master your relationship with food so that you can feel in control of your habits, respect your body, and free your mind to focus on the things in life that truly matter. I'm a clinical psychologist, and I've had years of experience doing research and patient care in the field of weight management and eating disorders. So I've had the insider view on understanding what works and what we're getting very, very wrong. In this podcast, you'll find practical information and tips based on motivation science, interviews from experts, and stories from real people and how they've navigated their relationship with food. My goal is to empower you with information, inspire you to make changes that fit you, and feel 100% supported along the way. So settle in and make yourself comfortable, and get excited to learn and take action for a better, healthier, more energized life. Hey everyone, Dr. Hondorp here, and I'm really excited to talk to you about this week's episode where I sat down with Dr. Karen Stewart. This is a really important conversation where we talked about some of the relationship between ADHD and weight and eating difficulties. So Dr. Stewart is a health psychologist. She has a wealth of knowledge in this area from a personal and professional perspective. So here are some of the things you can expect in this great interview. We're going to talk a little bit about Dr. Stewart's personal history of repeated dieting and eventually her decision to have gastric bypass surgery, a form of weight loss or bariatric surgery a couple years ago. We talked a little bit about her decision process with sharing this decision with her personal network and with her patients, and she does work in this field as well. We also talk about her diagnosis with ADHD and how this was missed for many years for her because of her symptoms being primarily inattentive versus her brother who had more hyperactive symptoms, more obvious symptoms. His got diagnosed and hers didn't, and we talked about how common this is, particularly for women. So we, this is a personal and professional goal of hers to learn more herself, but also increase awareness about the research and the, the relationship and how ADHD symptoms can impact eating, weight, weight gain, and things of that nature. So we're going to go over some of an overview of ADHD, some of the changes and how it might be diagnosed, and really just emphasizing here the importance of understanding yourself, advocating for yourself with whatever psychological strengths and difficulties you might have. And so as always, we're going to come back with some main takeaways at the end, but that's definitely one of our main messages here is for anyone, whether you meet criteria for ADHD or something else, really turning towards yourself and taking a look at the areas that impact you in terms of your thinking, your emotional well-being, and how that may be impacting your ability or your um, drive or kind of impacting your lifestyle decisions and all the things that you may want to be making changes in. So super excited to dive into this interview. Real quick before we do, if you're new here, welcome. I'm so glad to have you. Welcome to the podcast. You might be wondering what this blog and podcast are all about. So we relate everything in this podcast back to motivation, but not the hustle and grind kind. We talk about truly sustainable motivation that keeps you feeling energized and engaged in your life for the long haul. We talk about the idea that, quote unquote, I'm just not motivated is a myth and why type of motivation you have is so important to fully understand. If you're ready to learn about motivation and respecting your body in an effective way so you can truly live a life that you love, then you are in the right place. Check out the motivational or foundational episodes as and motivational of the podcast by going to the link in the show notes to the introduction and the first four episodes. There you're going to hear about the theory of motivation, self-determination theory, where kind of our roots are from. And then also... Make sure that if you haven't um, 
that you check out my free guide where, you know, really what we, what we're looking at in this podcast is helping people make internal autonomous motivation changes, right? We don't want you stuck in this ineffective diet binge cycle, but we also want you reflecting on what matters most to you. It's never too late to reflect on what matters to you, gain control of your eating, learn to respect your body, and live a life that's truly consistent with your values. But you have to take the first step and One of the very first steps in developing truly internal, autonomous, and body-respecting motivation is to clarify what matters to you. Not your mom, not your sister, not your best friend, just you. So the more you reflect on this, the more you can connect your values to your behaviors in any area, really, in a sustainable and empowered way. So grab the free guide at drhondorp.com forward slash goals to get started with this, the process of what are my values? We walk you through that. And I promise you, you are not going to regret this. This is the number one skill that I would say everyone that I work with likes the most. It's never too late to truly start living a life that you are feeling great about and is fully consistent with the person that you want to be. All right, everyone, as a reminder, this podcast and blog is for educational and informational purposes only and should not be construed as any form of professional advice. Let's dive in. All right, so today I have the pleasure of talking with Dr. Karen Stewart. Karen is a licensed clinical psychologist specializing in behavioral medicine with expertise in weight management, bariatric surgery, and the impact of mental health symptoms on efforts at lifestyle change. In particular, she's interested in the largely unrecognized impact of ADHD symptoms in adults who are studying, struggling with healthy habits, and we're going to dive into that a lot today. Uh, Dr. Stewart has a number of peer-reviewed articles and book chapters on assessment and treatment in a range of eating and weight-related issues. She also has published in the area of integrated care and associated cost savings. Her career is focused on helping individuals realize their personal goals and also helping the larger community by advocating for healthcare system change. And I'm so excited to have her here today. She's really a wealth of knowledge, Welcome to the Motivation Made Easy podcast, Dr. Stewart. Hi there. Thanks for having me. Of course. So let's dive right in. Can you tell us a little bit more about you, your personal journey, kind of how you got to where you are today? Yeah. So um, I want to kind of try to do a a brief version of three different components of that, I want to say. So um, how I became a psychologist and specifically a health psychologist um, you know, I, I went through, I was a psychology major in undergrad, which always just felt very natural. I kind of always assumed I would go to graduate school and per- pursue advanced studies in that. Um, and then my senior year of college, I had some personal experience with GI symptoms that were, that turned out to be stress-related, although initially I didn't believe my doctor when she told me that, um, And it wasn't a good, it was a good six months later before I had a very clear connection between a stressful event and the GI symptoms. And it was, you know, like a cramping and sometimes nausea, vomiting. It was pretty, pretty frightening symptoms. And it was happening about once a month and very upsetting symptoms sometimes. But, um, you know, what was interesting to me at the time is once I clearly realized that it was anxiety and stress related, all related to, you know, graduating college and figuring out what I was doing with my life. I never had the stomach symptoms again. I never had those symptoms again, which to me still to this day kind of blows my mind. And so Mm -hmm. I kind of, it kind of got me thinking about the ways in which stress impacts our bodies, um, as well as the way that we, meaning healthcare providers in general, um, address patients when that might be the case and how we can do a better job of um, helping understand. Cause I, I just felt very dismissed when my doctor said that I didn't think she was taking me seriously. Um, and, you know, it turned out she was right, but you know, I, I kind of wondered at times like, you know, I wonder had that been handled differently at the time, if I would have accepted it as an explanation, although probably not, it probably did require that you know, real life, obvious connection for me. Um, So um, that kind of brought me to the field of health psychology within studies of psychology. 
Um, and from there, I kind of was interested in a field called psychoneuroimmunology. Um, as Such part a of cool that. field. <laughs> I love it. It was so great. Yeah. And, you know, I really thought that that's probably what I was going to study um, long term. Um, and so my early research was in the areas of cancer and HIV disease. Um, but I got really kind of um, lull, uh, what's the word? I was romanced, I suppose, into the eating arena, which, um, you know, I'll kind of talk about that later because I think that's a later uh, question. But um, so it, it was kind of unintentional and it just became my place. Like it really felt like the right fit for me later on. Um, and that's probably related to part two of my personal story of how I ended up doing what I do is, um, you know, I say I got into eating and weight uh, treatment kind of by accident, um, only because, you know, my grad school classmates and I would talk about, we're doing knee search, right? And we would kind of joke about that. And so yep. having, having dealt with my own food and body image issues my whole life, it wasn't what I wanted to do. I didn't want to be you know, the, the psychologist who's basically just studying herself for her whole life. Um, Get that. So, yeah. So kind of the, the short story there is that um, I can recall being aware of and anxious about body size and negative outcomes that would be coming from having large body size before I ever had any body size increase, right? Like I was not in any way overweight at that age, but I know that um, I was aware of that concern, you know, looking back at pictures, I can see that I know that concern was there several years before any actual uh, weight accumulation. I would say I started having some weight, probably when I started to go through pre-puberty, like a lot of our patients that you've probably, you know, run into that experience too. Mm -hmm. um, and so, um, you know, I was very fortunate to grow up in a home that was, you know, very safe, very stable, very loving. Um, and we did have a good deal of anxiety, as I think was common in the 80s for families. You know, parents of our generation have a much different um, knowledge and awareness of how to address weight and food issues with, with children. But I think at, those, at that stage, I don't think that families knew how to protect children from the potential negative effects of talking about weight and body size and food in the ways that you would talk maybe to an adult at that time. Um, and, you know, with talking with patients over the years, you know, I, I, I know now that a lot of that pressure was coming from the medical establishment of, you know, pediatricians with good intention and, you know, um, concern for health were unintentionally un, un, un creating some anxiety and stress around body image that we now know can contribute to some disordered eating. Um, mm -hmm. And so I, I did go on to develop a little bit of disordered eating during my senior year of high school, um, carrying over a little bit into freshman year of college um, where there was um, some purging behaviors and things like that. And, um, you know, it was about a year probably total from start to finish um, to where I kind of uh, learned in my abnormal psychology course about some of the medical consequences there, um, which really truly freaked me out. And so I've, I now know that I'm one of the lucky ones who kind of recognized and put a stop to it very early. Um, it turns out, I think that the average person with an eating disorder doesn't get treatment until eight years in or so. Um, not that I got treatment. I just stopped. <laughs> yeah, uh, I probably should have. Right. Yeah. Um, but I was 18 and I wasn't sure at the time about how that would affect my future. If I wanted to be a psychologist, I suppose was one of the concerns I had. Mm -hmm. And also, I guess I've just figured, well, I'll just stop and it'll be okay. Um, yeah, it certainly that, wasn't normalized for psychologists and many mental health professionals to talk about their own stuff as I only really see recently shifting yeah. in large and it's still a shift. So yeah, it's yeah. definitely something I've gone through. Yeah. So, you know, I was very fortunate that, you know, I kind of caught this before it became, you know, really damaging uh, in a number of ways. Um, and, you know, I kind of um, went in another direction with things for a while where, you know, I was like, I'm just going to enjoy things, whatever. I'm not dealing with any of this. And I, I felt like I kind of um, just exclusively focused on um, my self identity as 
um, kind of who I am and, um, you know, everything from the neck up, <laughs> basically, like what was whatever was from the neck down, I was just like, I'm not dealing with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I kind of was in a space of, I'm just going to have fun with my friends, you know, it's college, we're eating pizza at two in the morning, we're eating cafeteria food all the time. And, you know, just kind of going with kind of getting into some habits where it was just, you know, eating um, just whatever kind of kind of situation. So I gained a bunch of weight in college. um, And uh, it was my senior year of college that I took a yoga class that helped me kind of recognize, oh, okay, I'm, um, I need to take care of myself. I am actually, um, you know, kind of neglecting a part of myself by this. And it's because it, because it's because it was such a painful topic that I just kind of had to divorce myself from it for a while. Mm -hmm. Um, but it kind of felt like a time of, you know, it's time to start figuring this out a little bit. Um, and so this was, I guess about 22, um, over the subsequent years, I lost, um, let's see, I lost about 40 pounds doing, I think it was sugar busters. Um, and uh, so at, at the time, um, was was probably about 100 pounds overweight, uh, depending on what you would decide a, an ideal weight was, but um, lost about 40 pounds. Uh, a few years went by, lost another 40 pounds while I was in my early years of my PhD studies. Um, and then lost, a, and that was with Weight Watchers. Um, and then another 20 during postdoc years, just with calorie counting. Um, thought I had a lot of things figured out um, and then kind of hit a, you know, a few stressful life events, um, went through pregnancy um, that definitely put on some weight um, and found myself um, back almost where I had been after pregnancy and um, finding it difficult to take it off now, uh, slightly older (laughs) than when I had in my 20s, essentially. Um, and so um, I've worked in the field of gastric bypass um, or bariatric surgery for a long time. Um, and in 2018, I decided to have my own gastric bypass. Um, and um, so that's nearly three years ago. Um, I had my surgery at Vanderbilt, which is where I was working at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so here I am today, almost three years later. Um, and like many people with COVID and pandemic stress, I've put on a little weight and working on, you know, kind of um, figuring out what's going on with that um, and trying to, you know, be good to myself through the whole process at the same time, um, mm-hmm. you know, and just navigating all the pieces of that. Um, so, and you've been yeah. quite open with that. Obviously, I appreciate you being open now. You've been open with at least your personal network yeah. about the decision to have surgery, correct? What is that mm-hmm. process of being? Have you always been open? Is this a newer thing for you? I'm just curious. As someone yeah. who's more recently been more open about this stuff yeah. too, I'm just curious what your process has been. Yeah, well, it's really interesting. I only know personally one other psychologist who does bariatrics who's had bariatric surgery, and um, that's my mentor actually. Um, and, um, you know, she's been very open about it. I had the idea of, you know, there's nothing to feel ashamed about with this. And so if my goal is to help my patients feel less ashamed of, of the struggle that comes with this, Mm -hmm. then I have to be willing to be unashamed as well. Yeah. Um, now I wasn't even sure. Now, of course, that then comes with um, when is it appropriate to share with patients? And at Vanderbilt, you know, uh, all of my colleagues were aware, you know, I mean, I had surgery in our program. Mm -hmm. Um, So it was pretty publicly, you know, available knowledge to our patients there. Um, I think just with, uh, I'm now in a new program, and I think it's slightly less uh, well known. I mean, my colleagues know, but uh, I don't typically, it's just kind of a different setup. So I don't think there's as much um, opportunity for patients to be as aware of that. So I kind of pick and choose when and if I disclose it to patients. And it's always, of course, with the goal of, would this be in some way beneficial to this patient is always Mm -hmm. kind of the reason that I would be disclosing that. Um, But yeah, my longer term patients who are in my group, for example, all know. Mm -hmm. Um, So um, 
but um, I actually didn't know if I was going to share about the surgery on my like social media. Um, I don't know if you recall, but um, I made a post the night of my surgery and just was like, hey, I had a little procedure today. Don't you worry. And it was, uh, you know, <laughs> it was um, drug fueled because <laughs> I was oh. on, the, on all the good painkillers. Um, and so, you know, that's how that decision was made was <laughs> okay. painkillers. I was like, well, I guess I'm telling everyone. Um, uh-huh. I didn't realize that when, I mean, I just saw a post and I was like, yeah, yeah. I, I had figured I probably would. Um, but that is also one of the reasons why I don't mention it much since then, not because I feel shame, but, um, uh, because of what we we've talked about and you've talked a lot on this podcast is. I never know. I know that I have friends who are in various different places with body image and with weight and with the whole idea of weight loss surgery. And I don't want to focus on it for the reason of not knowing how it could impact the audience of, Mm -hmm. you know, it's just hard to know when you've got such a wide range of people viewing your update to know how that might hit for them. And so I don't want to cause struggle and suffering to my friends, obviously. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. It's a, yes, that the disclosure decision is a lot different when you're disclosing to unknown recipients versus a yeah. one-on-one person that yeah. you know that person and at least you have a general sense of how it might affect yeah. them. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I'll briefly mention the third piece of my journey to being here is that I do also, um, have ADHD. And so Mm -hmm. the, the journey with kind of trying to want to understand more about how that's impacting people, um, who are trying to make lifestyle changes, um, you know, is both a personal and professional goal of like, Hmm, I'm trying to figure this out. And my experience maps onto what I see with a lot of my patients, which is, it was completely unrecognized in childhood. Um, very typical fashion. I, 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 being a female, I am more of an inattentive type with ADHD. Uh, my brother was diagnosed with ADHD. Um, he had the hyperactive uh, behaviors, which were very eye-catching, obviously stand out to teachers. Um, mm-hmm. And so um, while my brother and I think both, I believe we both have ADHD, um, his got picked up and mine did not. Um, and there's just some really, um, you know, just interesting factors of how that presents in women versus men or little girls and little boys. Um, I feel that I see a lot of women who don't figure it out for themselves until their children get diagnosed. Mm -hmm. And as they're learning about it for their child, they realize, oh my gosh, this is totally me. I've been struggling with these issues my entire life. I had no idea. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that brings about one of the, yeah, what we're going to talk about more today, because I think obviously that's a passion area of yours, but yeah, I really appreciate you sharing. Obviously, obviously, I I think that's obvious that I love when people are open enough to share, because I do think that is definitely was one of my decisions to share is just like so much of this is rooted in shame and it doesn't need to be like, there's nothing wrong with that. And I think it's been interesting to sort of gradually move away from this model of as any type of professional, but uh, certainly in psychology, just the idea that like, we're, we're, we're over here, we have it all figured out. And it's like, nope, yeah, just humans (laughs) navigating things just like you. And yeah, yeah, so I appreciate all of that. Um, And yeah, just your willingness to, to, share all of your knowledge with us, not from the personal and uh, professional perspective. So I think let's start with um, just the basics of what is ADHD and or ADD, because a lot of people have questions about the differences, right? Right. Um, And and how would someone know if they have it? Because I think there's a lot of misconceptions about that. Yeah. So uh, let me say that, of course, you know, I am, I I would not want to describe myself as a definitive expert on ADHD. It's more of an aspiration of like learning more about this and being a resource for my current patients, because my focus is on the weight and a a bariatric surgery treatment. Um, But I would like to someday become um, more expert in ADHD and, um, you know, that is one of, and, and I see it as such an underserved and underrecognized area that affects not just weight and 
um, eating habits, but multiple life domains. Um, so that's actually kind of my um, career plan at this moment is to, um, I'm, I, I do have a day job uh, working in a bariatric program um, and I'm allowed to have a private practice on the side. Um, I'm still kind of putting some pieces into place and I plan on doing a bunch of training to really kind of get where I wanna be with um, being able to be helpful with ADHD, but I plan to eventually, probably later this year or early next year, start taking a few patients focused exclusively on ADHD, just to kind of, um, there, there's actually a clinician in my area who's leaving who focuses on ADHD. So there's gonna be a huge um, hole to yeah. fill when, when he leaves, unfortunately. And he's been really helpful in helping me kind of um, getting my sight set on how I want to approach things. Nice. But anyway, it seems like there's just a lot to learn in this area in general. Yeah. So like, yeah, you can, you and anyone can do more training, but like, it seems like it's an evolving field, at least yeah. what I know yeah. so far. Yeah. And, you know, so in terms of what exactly ADHD is, you know, there's a, a definition of that in the DSM um, that people can kind of look up, but essentially it's, um, symptoms in three different areas. There's inattentive symptoms, hyperactive symptoms, and impulsivity symptoms. Um, and to receive a diagnosis, if you're under, if you're 17 or under, you would need six symptoms, 18 and over five symptoms. Um, and just to name a few of the symptoms in those different areas, um, inattentive symptoms would include things like poor listening skills, um, losing, misplacing items, um, sidetracked, easily distracted, um, forgets daily activities, diminished attention span. Um, and then hyperactive symptoms would be squirming, fidgeting, um, restlessness, um, appears to be driven by a motor, always on the go, um, overly talkative, um, impulsive symptoms are difficulty waiting turn, interrupting, intruding into conversations, um, or blurting out answers. Um, so um, importantly, you know, those are all behaviors and characteristics that most humans experience on some level, but it's important that for this to be a diagnosable condition, it would need to be on a scale that's out of proportion with, you know, developmental goals at that stage, as well as um, causing uh, distress or dysfunction in some sort of way. Um, and these symptoms can cause problems in lots of areas like school or work performance, um, difficulties in regulating emotions, difficulties in regulating behavior. Um, they can interfere with relationships, um, contribute to symptoms of anxiety and depression, can cause low self-esteem. We know that um, kids with ADHD experience greater rates of peer rejection. Um, and so there's, there's kind of a lot of things that be, can be going on for a child or an adult that's dealing with um, ADHD symptoms. Um, yeah, and there's yeah. really like uh, what strikes me as you're talking is there's just a whole lot of different symptoms. People can have, uh, like you said, with you and your brother, very different presentations. And and I've been hearing like there's just a lot of different types, right? And that's people are trying to sort of type it, it seems like, in, in the field. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I think it's it's also important to kind of zoom out and realize that, you know, it's a lot larger than just that checklist of symptoms, right? Mm -hmm. Where, um, and it can be helpful to think of it from the perspective of what's driving those symptoms and those behaviors where, um, you know, um, I, I like to think of it as ADHD is not truly a deficit of attention. Um, it's actually a neurologically driven difficulty in directing attention. Mm -hmm. So this can sometimes actually result in things like hyperfocus, mm -hmm. right? Which isn't directly mentioned in the diagnostic criteria, but it's definitely, uh, you know, it can be a part of the syndrome. Um, yeah, yeah. Can it be sort of potentially honed as a superpower in uh, right. at times, right? Like some right. people can sort of learn to work with their, and, and maybe you're going to speak more to this, but yes. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Um, I don't know that I would have finished my dissertation without hyperfocus. Um, mm -hmm. And I've heard people describe it as both highly reinforcing experience and deeply painful experience. Like it can be very um, difficult. And I actually really did have a hard time with my dissertation because I think at the time, because I wasn't as 
fully aware of the ADHD at that time. I think I thought it was more anxiety um, and that I was kind of getting caught in an OCD loop, but I was checking things. I was very fearful of making mistakes. Um, and um, I focused on it more than I needed to, and it took a lot longer than it needed to. Um, and so, you know, um, it's very interesting. You know, I, I was not truly diagnosed with ADHD until I want to say I was probably 40. Um, okay. I actually did seek out an assessment when I was about 26 or seven. Um, and uh, there've been some changes in how we assess and diagnose ADHD. And I think in that era, in my mid twenties, when I got that testing done, a lot of the emphasis was on the results of neuropsychological testing as proof that you did or did not have ADHD. Um, in, our mo in our current era, I think we understand that those tests do play a role and they certainly help with, I like to think of it as it helps delineate within ADHD, if you have ADHD, or even if you don't have ADHD, what are relative cognitive and executive functioning strengths and weaknesses you may have, but they're not the be all end all for diagnosis. And the emphasis mm -hmm. now is more on the clinical interview portion of things and the functional effects of symptoms and, um, and the history there. Um, and it tends to be, does it tend to be pretty stable across the lifespan in terms of symptoms? Because I know I've heard that the clinical, like you said, the clinical interview, but also the history. Um, I, uh, I want to say been. that there's, I think I read a statistic that approximately 40% of children with ADHD continue to exhibit signs of ADHD as adults. Okay. Um, I think we previously thought that a large number, if not all, like this was previously a children's disorder only. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think we thought people aged out of it, so to speak. Um, and we know that now that that's not true. Um, I want to say it was about 40% still show signs as an adult. Yeah, but when you say the clinical interview, it's really um, the history and the current symptoms and how it's impacting, like you said, sort of right. impairment, how much it's um, impacting your life and how's it showing up currently. And that right. could certainly change over time, it sounds like, which makes right. sense. Right. And sometimes adult diagnosis is hindered by the requirement of there having been evidence of symptoms prior to the age of 12. I've heard um, that yep. because this is still considered a developmental disorder. Um, but I attended a talk at Vanderbilt um, several years ago, and I wish I could remember the researcher's name. Maybe I can go back to the, the schedule and see if I can find her and look her up. But um, she talked about this in a way that really shifted the perspective on, on that for me of um, a lot of adults may not have had evidence of those symptoms for a number of kind of mediating factors. So one might be high level of intelligence was kind of masking the fact that they weren't paying attention in school. Um, so maybe they were getting by academically, not because they were working, but because they just kind of picked things up more easily. Mm -hmm. um, or, um, you know, school tends to be a highly structured environment. Um, things are kind of organized for you. Um, expectations are clear. Um, I mean, it, certainly that would vary by classroom or by school. Um, and, you know, a lot of kids may also have a pretty structured home environment that's, that she referred to it as scaffolding that kind of um, prevented the ADHD symptoms from emerging during those years because um, the supports were there that did not require that the child utilize a lot of their own executive functioning. And so they might emerge during those probably early adult years when you're trying to figure out some of those things for yourself. Yeah, so if someone were to get an assessment or want help determining for themselves, they would really want someone who's going to help them look at the whole picture, look at the environment and how that did or didn't impact presentation of symptoms versus just the check boxes and versus mm -hmm. just the did they have symptoms before age 12 kind of a thing, which makes a lot of sense and probably probably a little bit challenging to find someone with that, that training, but they they exist and there are people looking to, to learn more about this, which is clearly very needed. Um, and I, I want to ask how it relates to eating and weight in a second. But before I go there, I know this is probably a complicated question, but do we have a general sense of like prevalence and how common oh, as sure. we're looking at just the yeah. general population and then perhaps maybe actually relating to folks who are struggling with their, their eating or their weight as well? Yeah. 
So the estimates of prevalence in the general American adult population is around 4.4%-ish. Um, that would be and, criteria. Yep. Yeah, and globally, yeah, globally, the estimates are fairly similar. Okay. Um, and so um, there, it, it's hard to kind of nail down exactly what the rates are because, you know, of course, study after study, um, you know, uses different methods and we always have all those issues. But mm-hmm. you know, there have been some meta-analyses that have come up with somewhere around uh, an odds ratio of 1.55 risk of obesity in adults with ADHD compared to adults without ADHD, mm-hmm. um, which the study estimated to be a pooled 70% increase in prevalence of obesity in adults with ADHD. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, you know, the precise amount of increase is, you know, maybe there's some wiggle room there. Uh, but it seems fairly well established that there is an increased rate of obesity among adults with ADHD. Mm-hmm. Um, and there have been a few studies looking at that in um, bariatric surgery seeking patients as well, um, also indicating elevated rates. Um, and yet, from my knowledge, most bariatric programs aren't screening for ADHD as a matter of course, like it, it might be part of the interview um, but I, I don't typically see an ADHD screener, for example, in the, in the assessment battery for most programs. Yeah, um, I would agree with that. I think it's rare. I'm sure it yeah. occurs. Yeah. And, and how, yeah. Yeah. How much how, you can't assess for everything, right? right? You can't limited you can, it, smaller yeah. and smaller windows, it seems, but, right. yeah. um, and how else would you say that ADHD relates to our eating and our weight and kind of other ways? Yeah. So um, there's some research on that. And then also some clinical observations that that I have where, you know, um, I guess there are some longitudinal studies that do suggest that there's a, uh, an actual causal effect, because, you know, we know that, you know, an association doesn't mean causation, but there are now actually some longitudinal studies that suggest that the ADHD is contributing to weight gain. Um, and so one, uh, one study kind of parsed it into people who have, you know, very high rates of, uh, ADHD symptoms, um, tend to engage in more hedonic eating. And there are also other kinds of problematic eating, um, that occurs in people with ADHD. So there's, there's greater rates of binge eating, greater rates of emotional eating, um, greater rates of endorsement of food addiction and all sorts of kind of different pathways and eating struggles that people may be going through that um, are associated with ADHD and might be related to some of those symptoms. Um, Clinically, um, for a long time, I've really observed that there are just, you know, a myriad of pathways um, that lead to weight gain, sometimes patterns that seem really unexpected and surprising. Um, something that I observed quite a bit and have questioned and just wondered for a long time of like, why do I see this so often is people who only eat one time per day, um, coming to bariatric surgery, um, with a pattern of skipping breakfast, skipping lunch and eating one fairly large meal for dinner, um, may or may not be binge eating, you know, uh, in many cases, it's not even binge eating, but it's just, I've gotten into this routine of eating one meal per day. Um, and there's even a number of pathways to that. For some people that um, is an expression of some disordered eating that has maybe evolved over time into this um, routine. Um, but in some cases it's a disorganization piece. Um, you know, sometimes people kind of wake up and they don't have a plan and they're launched into their day and it's midday before they even think about food. And by then it's like, well, it's only two more hours till I leave for work, leave for home. So I'm just going to eat on the way home, you know, get, eat when I get home, um, which often leaves you um, excessively hungry um, and feeling deprived and depleted, um, unable to come up with a good plan, much less execute a plan. Mm-hmm. Um, which leads to a lot of convenience foods, fast food, things like that, ordering out. Um, so um, I do see a lot of, um, of pieces of that. And not that um, every person who has trouble organizing has ADHD, but that's just one potential pathway, of course. Right. Um, yeah, that's definitely a common presentation, whether or not it's like the one meal a day presentation, yeah. pretty common. And yeah, yeah. yeah. 
Uh, and, you know, if you think about it, ADHD fundamentally is a, a problem of executive functioning where um, this is the series of uh, planning, organization, um, and follow through that is more difficult for someone with ADHD. And so if you think about healthy eating, it certainly requires those skills. Um, so I think that um, becomes a component of this as well. Um, mm -hmm. Another issue that I see that I think is maybe happening for both people with and without ADHD, but I think ADHD could be contributing, is when I um, am kind of asking people questions about emotional eating, uh, boredom is far and away the number one endorsed trigger, emotional trigger for eating. Um, and so boredom we know is uh, more commonly experienced by people with ADHD. Um, and I kind of interpret that as um, you know, the ADHD brain we know has um, reduced available dopamine in the system. Um, and so I kind of think of boredom as kind of the brain is currently in a suboptimal state of arousal and it's seeking arousal. Um, and food can become one of many ways that, that the brain seeks that um, optimal arousal. Um, and so boredom uh, could be a pathway for ADHDers uh, to um, problems in eating and, and weight. Um, mm -hmm. So, and then there's emotional eating, uh, more generally speaking. Um, we know that there are also emotion regulation difficulties uh, which is also an executive functioning um, skill uh, for people with ADHD. So they may be at risk of um, overutilizing food as an emotion regulation tool. Mm -hmm. um, and then finally, there's the impulsivity piece um, where, um, you know, it's, it's harder to inhibit responses when you're someone who has ADHD. Um, and so um, if you have, I, I kind of explain it to patients like this of, you know, if you have two people sitting at a table and there's a plate of cookies on the table and you've instructed them to not eat the cookies, um, the person with ADHD has to work harder at inhibiting that impulse to eat the cookies. Yeah. And so just over the course of time, this naturally leads to, you know, more and more um, potential opportunities for calorie intake, of course. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You see how all of those pathways, you can see sort of like many people with and without ADHD having that pathway potentially, but you see it being potentially exacerbated and even like the self-control depletion model where we know that for all of us using self-control exhausts over time, but if yeah. you're using more, right? Like if, mm -hmm. if you have the, with this diagnosis, potentially you're having that stronger pull automatically and that's exacerbated by um, maybe an imposition of a diet or, or this feeling of I shouldn't. And then that that. So that's really interesting and helpful to kind of lay it out. So just kind of, yeah, it's like an underlying factor that could amplify all these things that are already challenging to deal with. I mean, yes. I, I struggle to deal with the planning aspects of healthy eating to this day, and I maybe one day I'll get it figured out, but it's, um, it's a challenge and yet it's an amplified challenge is sort of yeah. what I'm hearing. Yeah, definitely. Um, what would you say is your favorite thing to help people understand with regards to this, this topic? And, and what are some, like, because I know that you have, like, a strong passion for this. And I love to hear sort of, like, what, what you like to help people understand in these areas that can sort of empower them. Yeah, I guess for me, what is so appealing about health psychology is the opportunity to engage with someone who maybe never in their life would have um, otherwise met with any mental health professional mm -hmm. and being able to show them the, the practical benefits of attending to their mental health. Um, and I like to try to lay it out fairly concretely to them of how their symptoms might impact them in reaching their goals. Um, and my goal with the bariatric evaluation actually is to engage them in that process with me so that they'll be willing to work with me um, in helping to, you know, kind of learn some things that might help them with those symptoms. Um, and also just the, the self-compassion piece of that, of like, you know, people have often been very, very hard on themselves about these things. Um, and mm -hmm. like with ADHD, people often feel like, well, if I would just try harder or I'm just so lazy, um, these are some of the like really self, uh, negative, 
you know, self-critical thoughts that people with ADHD often are having. Um, and to really understand that, you know, you're not alone in this experience and that um, this, is a, this is a thing that, you know, this is how it's affecting you. And here's some practical strategies that could help you make it better. Um, I like being able to provide some hope in that area. Yeah, I love that. What are some of the major problems you're seeing in the healthcare settings with regards to how we approach some of these concerns? Yeah, uh, it's really that we're too siloed in our approach to things, which I think is a, a larger problem in healthcare on so many other issues as well. But mm-hmm. um, I, I don't expect my medical colleagues to have the depth of understanding of ADHD that I do. Um, in fact, your average mental health um, professional doesn't even understand ADHD on this level. Looking back, I don't believe, you know, I was an adult trainee, like I was trained to work with adults. And so I can probably count on one hand, the number of times that ADHD came up in my graduate studies at all. Not Um, much for me at all. No, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it's not nearly as central to our thinking of mental health as, um, anxiety and depression, um, and other, you know, kind of more commonly seen disorders. And yet I think we really greatly underestimate its impact um, on people's health and well-being. Um, so, but anyway, getting back to the healthcare question of, you know, I don't expect my medical colleagues to, to be able to address that. Um, but I, I would like to see multidisciplinary care in nearly every medical setting, because uh, I think for exactly that reason of like, you can't expect, you know, be like asking me to be an expert at chemotherapy. Well, no, mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm not, that's yeah. not a good idea. Nope. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I love that. And I guess in terms of, so yeah, just having interdisciplinary, ideally, right? Like a, a team approach and like basically doing a quick screening and uh, either consulting with another professional or referring and, that definitely is not happening in this, well, maybe a little bit more in the area of ADHD, a, a tiny bit more of like referrals. I, I see a little bit more of, especially when pers- uh, providers are looking to prescribe stimulant, stimulant medications, they're a little bit more hesitant, it seems, but I yeah. think that might be, I, I'm I've not seen sure why that is. But things too, where insurance companies will require certain things to cover for, for that purpose. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, okay. Um, Well, and I want to uh, ask a couple of our standard motivation questions that we like to ask everyone, and then we'll kind of come back to some main takeaways. So in terms of intrinsic motivation, what's one thing or behavior that you have truly intrinsic motivation for? So you do it for inherent satisfaction from the behavior, you either enjoy it, find it challenging or satisfying in its own right. Yeah. So um, for me, it's um, art. Uh, I like making jewelry specifically, but I have over the years um, tried my hand at every little thing, (laughs) it turns out. Um, When I was um, in my master's studies, a friend taught me to do beaded jewelry. Um, And, you know, that's been over 20 years now, I believe, uh, give or take. Um, And so I'm still to this day making jewelry, but I've explored other media along the way. And now I do beaded jewelry, polymer clay, um, and a whole host of different things. Um, And uh, I also really loved pottery classes, um, working with ceramics. That was really excellent. Um, So I just love, I've actually reached a point where I I really have to um, not take on new crafts. I'm like, Mm -hmm. oh, let me explore various methods of jewelry making and stick to just that one because it's the one I continually come back to. And so it's become quite a, a, you know, a great outlet for me with my ADHD yeah. actually is having something that really allows me to explore a lot of creative and divergent ideas. Yeah, I love that. And I love seeing all your posts about that. I know we're detracting away from your jewelry <laughs> day to day. So we got to get you back <laughs> yeah. to that. But yeah, I mean, that's another one where it's like, that is really beneficial for, for all of us. Like I think mm-hmm. everyone, some type of creative thing, even if like me, maybe you don't think of yourself as a creative person in quotes, and yet that's essential, but it sounds like potentially for even per- certain, whether it's diagnoses or personality type, like might be even more essential. And that sounds like that's been a pretty a kind of ingrained thing that's been really useful to you for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. 
Nice. Um, and then the next question is our from a should to a choose to sort of how we integrate motivation for things that we feel like we should do, but might be challenging. So is what's one example of a behavior that was always a should for you, you used to struggle to do, but you figured out a way to do it more consistently because you either value it as part of your identity, even if you don't always love it. Yeah. So the this is kind of a mixed answer where exercise would be sometimes intrinsic and sometimes not. It depended on what it was, right? Mm -hmm. um, running was the one thing I truly had intrinsic motivation for. And I think because it was so helpful with um, my ADHD and with the anxiety I experienced as a result of the ADHD, it was just such a very peaceful and calming experience and required minimal planning. Uh, yep. <laughs> just put your shoes on and go. Um, I do also enjoy other activities like biking, but, you know, biking is a kind of a, a tool intensive and maintenance intensive sport. Um, you, know, you really have to know how to take care of your bike to, to do it well. Um, but basically, if it exercise isn't truly rewarding like that, then I struggle to implement it. And unfortunately, this is probably related to uh, the struggles with weight gain in the past several years or in previous years um, where I can't run anymore right now because of knee issues. Um, and so I, I have struggled with um, enjoying lower intensity physical activity. It doesn't feel as um, rewarding as, as yeah. running. I um, could relate to that a lot. I've shared a lot of my podcasts about how I currently can't run because yeah. of like pelvic floor issues and it's, yep. I miss it so much. So I, I, I totally get that. I actually have on a daily basis, multiple impulses to go out for a run. And then I remember I can't. Um, and so it's a little bit of a downer. It's totally, it, yeah. Um, so I try to infuse the lower intensity activities with being more fun by making it social. Um, so, you know, time to catch up with, um, a friend, you know, um, or I do love dancing. So, um, I enjoy, there's a, a young man who does dancing videos on YouTube. And so I just watch a few of his videos and sometimes I'll even just in my office, close the door and do a song, you know, nice. That's <laughs> uh, awesome. just to get moving. Um, yes. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. So it's adding something, adding something that makes it more naturally enjoyable or like the social component has a little bit of built-in accountability to it because right. you told someone you'd show up somewhere. So exactly. Right. Mm -hmm. Yes. I appreciate all of that. And actively, I literally yeah. emailed my physical therapist this morning. I'm actually going to have her on the podcast because I need to, Great. Yeah. I think we need more awareness. And uh, I also, I'm like, yeah. She's like, I've heard you're struggling. I'm like, I am, <laughs> but I, I hit I'm, my deductible and I can't yes. see you. <laughs> yeah. I I'm actually maybe going to go see an osteopath, um, over at Virginia tech that was recommended to me. I already oh, did good. some physical therapy earlier this year and made some progress, but I think I need kind of the more holistic because like you, it's not just a knee issue. I actually had, you know, I have pelvic floor issues too. My pelvis is uneven. I've had sacroiliac joint dysfunction. I had severe diastasis recti, and now I have a hernia from my C-section, and it's it's a bit of a hot mess. <laughs> I yes, I feel for you on many accounts there, and yeah, yeah. I will hope that yes, continue. Yeah. Just it sounds like it's very much worth it to just yeah. keep keep trying, you know, regardless. Yeah. But how, how do I keep this body moving essentially? Yes. And running can changes. be, it's like, yeah. cool. Cause you have that intrinsic drive for it, which some people don't. Right. And some people struggle with that. And so it's like, of course we want to find ways to yeah. get you doing that or get anyone doing things they love. So, yeah. Um, and then what, I guess, what would you say are the main takeaway messages you'd like all listeners to know related to these topics? Yeah. So um, my take home message, I think is that um, you know, if you're trying to make changes in your life, whether it's with your eating habits, your activity habits, relationship patterns, any kind of changes, things that you're trying to do differently, um, it's definitely worth the energy and effort to look into how's your emotional well-being and where there are some points of change there that might need to happen first um, before you will um, really be in a great position to make those changes. Um, 
and that, you know, I always encourage people that um, whether it's mental health or physical health or any kind of change, um, it's very important that you approach that from the right mindset and do it with, you know, observing yourself with kindness, compassion, and always with constructive um, learning, um, you know, and speaking to yourself in a way that you would speak to a loved one about the kinds of things and struggles that you're dealing with. Um, it goes a long way, I think, towards making this a process um, that can be, you know, much more successful and, and self-affirming. Yeah, yeah, I love that. And where can people learn more about you, the work that you're doing, and connect with you? So I have a professional Facebook account, uh, an Instagram, and a Twitter account. All are under Karen Stewart. Um, some, uh, let's see, Twitter and Instagram both have Karen Stewart PhD tagged at the end uh, with some Perfect. underscores. Yeah. And we will link all of that. Great. So thank you so much for your time today, Dr. Stewart. Super excited to talk and start to delve into these important topics. It was so great to talk to you. I really enjoyed it. All right, everyone, I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. I'm going to go over some main takeaways with you now, um, but I hope that this brought something to your attention that maybe, no pun intended, that maybe wasn't something you'd been considering before, or maybe if it's actively influencing your life, you were already like, yeah, Sean, I know. I do think as we talked about in this podcast and this conversation that this is an area where we're clearly missing the mark in many ways. Just the fact that in clinical psychology training, we're not doing a thorough enough training in this area. And so I hope that regardless of whether you notice a lot of these symptoms for yourself, or maybe you know loved ones that have these symptoms, that we're able to approach looking at how we difficulties with kind of directing attention, as Dr. Stewart said, it's not necessarily difficulty with attention, it's neurological differences or difficulties with directing attention. So that's an important difference. It's being able to sort of understand yourself and hone that as a strength, um, potentially versus feeling like it's hindering you in, in achieving your goals. So some of the main takeaways from today's conversation is the fact that ADHD and attention difficulties is often missed and particularly in women. So Dr. Stewart shares her experience where her brother was diagnosed, but given that her symptoms were primarily inattentive, not the hyperactive symptoms, this went missed and she was not diagnosed until about 40. And as I just mentioned, the other takeaway is that ADHD is underemphasized in the field. So this is not something that we are routinely trained on or routinely screening for in general. And this can have a problem when people assume that it's anxiety or another concern when really it could be undiagnosed and unaddressed ADHD symptoms. And finally, the third takeaway is that there's many ways that these symptoms can impact eating behavior and or weight. And as Dr. Stewart says at the very end there, it's really important to work to understand yourself and really look at yourself from a self-compassionate lens, as we've talked about in this podcast, but helping, you know, taking that approach and learning about yourself can make the process much more successful and self-affirming. So I loved that, and I know that all of us can benefit from that message. So before we finish up here, I wanted to remind you that if nothing slows the momentum, Amazon's going to have 80% of the book market by the end of 2025. So like you, I, you probably, like me, love the convenience of Amazon, but I'll tell you, I don't get my books there anymore. I've got a super cool way that you can support local bookstores and my blog and podcast simply by buying books like you already do. The prices are very similar. They're sometimes a little more, sometimes a little bit less, but they're almost very similar in most cases. You can choose any bookstore on the list in the U.S. and Canada, and or you can also just let your donations get split between all the stores. As of this recording, they've raised $15 million for local bookstores, and I love it because I can pick a literally a bookstore directly near my house, and I know that they're getting support, and I know I'm able to support 
small businesses like myself as well. So on my bookshop shop, you're going to see my absolute favorite books related to health and wellness, courage and vulnerability, and even my favorite fiction and kids books. And I'm always adding to it and giving my description. So um, my recent favorite is we read, I read Digital Minimalism as part of a book club, which talks about the impact of digital screens and social media on our well-being and really helping you from a value-based place, not a you shouldn't do this, but each person has to figure out for them what is the role of screens in their life. And I really liked that approach. So we're going to be doing some reevaluating in that area. So please consider getting your books through the bookshop link for the psychology of wellness. The link's in the show notes. And you can also go to bookshop.com forward slash shop forward slash psychology of wellness. Thank you so much for considering and have a wonderful day. Thank you for tuning in today. Your time is valuable and it means so much to me that you're here. Despite the title of this podcast, many of our topics are not always easy. Change is hard and let's face it, life and truly looking inward at ourselves can be uncomfortable. That's why I'm grateful grateful for you and your willingness to listen, learn, and keep an open mind. I invite you to learn more by going to drshawnhondorp.com or finding me on Instagram at psychology.of.wellness. If you're enjoying this podcast, it would be amazing if you could give it a review so more people can find it. Thanks, and I truly hope you have an energetic and inspired day.